There is a difference in being present with someone and then offering your presence to someone, is there not? I have learned this the hard way, uh, especially and particularly in my years of marriage. We're coming up on nine years now, and I have learned this the hard way. Um, there have been times at the dinner table where my phone has rang or I have gotten a text message, and I have gotten up from the dinner table and went to check my phone. Now, if you guys don't know my wife very well, she's a very sweet lady, but there's nothing you could do that would make her more frustrated than, than get away from the family time and go in to check your phone, right? It's not a good thing to do. Uh, you know, there's... It's really been easy for me to consider other things more important than the people right in front of me. And so this text that I read today about Acts chapter 4 uh, has really struck my heart. And uh, ultimately what I've realized, whenever I am unable to be present and offer my presence to other people, like full presence, not like, not like checking your cell phone whenever you're at the doctor's appointment and like you, you're afraid of being by yourself, you know what I mean? So you just pull out your phone when you're sitting there. Anybody guilty of that? You just do that, you're alone, you're like, I'm going to pull my phone out, it's just what I'm going to do. There, there's, there's, there's a great thing that I've realized whenever I'm uncomfortable or awkward offering my presence to people is that really it's not an issue between me and that person. It's an issue between me and God. Because whenever I'm unable to offer my presence to other people, it's probably because I'm not very good at offering my presence and receiving God's presence for myself. And this is what strikes us about Acts chapter 4 this morning, that we have a tendency to do the same thing with Jesus, to maybe be present with God, to be present in the activities that lead us to God, but not really offer our presence to God. There's a difference in those two things, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, that we, have, that we are almost hardwired because of the fallen nature to resist being with Jesus. And because we have a difficult time being with Jesus, our witness is affected. In light of that. So if you would stand as we read Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. If you are new here with us, we are going, we're in a series of messages that we are calling Saturate. And in this series of messages, we are going through the book of Acts together. Uh, and so in this particular text that we're looking at right here, a lame man has just been healed, and then there is a trial that's going on. And so that's the text that we are reading today. So here's here's what uh, Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 13, says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. This is the Sanhedrin. And they recognized, underline this in your Bible if you've got a Bible, that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. This is the Sanhedrin. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them all and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before You uh, because we recognize that there's a difference in being present and offering our presence. And so, what we notice about this Scripture that, that keeps us in awe is the fact that being with Jesus gives our lives a palpable, tangible difference. And we really struggle with it, God. So we ask that You would meet us here this morning and You would guide us in the way of truth. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So I want to recap this conversation because we're doing like three sermons in this encounter in Acts chapter 4. So I want to catch us up to speed on where we're at. So there was a question after Peter and John healed this lame guy that had been lame for 40 years as Acts 4 tells us. There was a question that the Sanhedrin, which is the equivalent of like the the Jewish Supreme Court, 70 guys that they were judging the Israelites in Jerusalem. They come, they bring them before uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, and Peter and John are arrested, and, and they ask them this question right here. By what power or name did you do this? What's the trick? How did you guys do this thing right here? We can't figure it out. And the answer was this, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Acts chapter 4, verse 10. And then they kind of give a little insight about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And they said, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So what are you guys going to do with that? Because Jesus is the only way. We talked about that at length last week. And the Sanhedrin responds this way, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. You see, what was going on is their effectiveness in the kingdom couldn't be calculated. They couldn't control Jesus. You know why? Because they had killed Jesus, right? The Sanhedrin, the Jewish officials were the ones that ordered Jesus to be killed. And here, they're seeing Jesus show up on the scene again. Not in the flesh, but through His disciples. Imagine that. They can't control what's going on. And Peter and John respond to them like this. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. And I love this part right here. We can't help it. Because <laughs> you can tell us to shut this thing down, but we can't help it. It's all that we can talk about because we've been with Jesus. The only thing that made Peter and John unusual, because we realize that they are, they are very ordinary, average kind of Joes like you and I. They weren't trained rabbis. They didn't go to rabbinical school. Yet they're teaching with authority and accuracy about who Jesus is. They're, they're talking about the Old Testament, how Jesus fulfills these prophecies. They know the Word of God. The one thing that made Peter and John unusual was the only thing the Sanhedrin didn't have. You know what that was? Jesus. You know what that tells us? It, it kind of scares us a little bit. We're going to get into this this morning because these men thought that they were with God. They were leading God's people, the Israelites, yet they missed the point entirely. They missed Jesus altogether. 
reminded of Matthew chapter 28, 20. This won't be on the screen, but we tend to think about the Great Commission, which is go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. We're really good at remembering that. We've got to go, church, right? But we're really bad at remembering Matthew 28, 20, which says this, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What we should rather do is remember that Jesus is with us always to the end of the age, and that is our power for going, is it not? This is what Peter and John got so well in Acts chapter 4. He's alluding to the fact, the Sanhedrin, these unbelieving Jewish men, are alluding to the fact that they notice that these guys had been with Jesus. And though Jesus, you know, they had, they had put Him on a cross, they had heard that He had raised from the dead, some people had witnessed it. They thought that He was dead and that His influence had ended. But because these men had been with Jesus and Jesus had changed their life and given them new life, Jesus' presence was still palpable. It was still present. And nothing can contain a man that's raised from the dead. His life was all over them that even the Sanhedrin recognizes. So here's our tension this morning. You know, the Apostle Paul, who has written most of the New Testament letters, uses a phrase over and over and over again. The New Testament alludes to this over a hundred times. The fact that the biggest thing that describes Christians is the fact that they're in Christ. That they're, they're in Him. That we're united by faith to Christ. Glued together. Unable to be separated from God. Last week we talked about what salvation looks like and all the components and what God's doing in that. What it's all describing is this fact that you and I have union with God. Our tension is that we have an abiding union with God through Christ, by His Holy Spirit who's applying it to us. Yet, we have a tendency to abandon it, do we not? If I were to ask some of you, was there a moment in your week this past week where you felt all alone, where you felt isolated, where you didn't feel the presence of God with you? You would raise your hand. You, every one of us would. Because we know that we feel this tension every single day. So we're going to explore this morning what it means to be with Jesus. Because when I read Acts 4.13, I just stop. It just gives me reason to pause. I can't read anything else. Because I want that. And I think New City Church, you want that too more than anything else. You want to be with Jesus. You want, Je you want, to, you want to be aware of Jesus' presence with you through His Spirit. So i got two points today. The first one's this. We have an abiding union with God through Christ by the Spirit. And the second place that we're going is we have a tendency to abandon our union with Christ. Now, I'm going to have a lot of notes this morning. So uh, I'm going to do you a, a service and we're just going to get those to you so you can just enjoy the sermon if you're one of those crazy note takers because you're not going to be able to keep up today. Um, but there's going to be a lot of good stuff we're going to look at. And, uh, and so, yeah. So the disciples are, are glued to Jesus. That's who we are. That is our... Uh, that is, that is the way the Scriptures describe us. And the Scriptures use a lot of different pictures to describe our union with Christ. I don't know if you've noticed them before, but, but Paul talks about this idea that it's like a building whose foundation is Jesus, so everything kind of relies on the foundation. Uh, Paul talks about this idea of a marriage, that, that just like a marriage, a husband and wife are, are knit together and the two become one flesh. That's what happens when we're united to Christ, that that He's the, the, the bridegroom and we're the bride as the church. That the Scriptures talk about this idea of the head and the body. That Christ is the head and we are the body 
of Christ. There's this idea of federal headship where we were we all fell in Adam, but we all who have faith in Christ are, are risen with Christ because we have faith in Him. And then my favorite picture is this. Out of all the pictures that the Scriptures give us, is the vine and the branches. So if you have a Bible, you can flip it over to John chapter 15. I'm going to read the first five verses of that, or they'll be on the screen as well. This talks about this idea of an abiding union with God. <clears throat> John writes this, I, he's talking about this is Jesus speaking here, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. He's the one that takes care of the vine. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the Word that I have spoken to you. Abide in Me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in Me, unless you remain in Me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. Uh, my kids like to play with sticks. I don't know what it is. They just love sticks. Especially my boys. They like to fight with sticks. Occasionally they'll take a, tr- a, a stick, you know, it's a part of a tree, and they'll, they'll, they'll try to stick it in the ground and plant a stick. You know what I mean? And you and I are thinking, this is going nowhere, right? Because we have this knowledge of, hey, it needs a root structure and all that kind of stuff. It needs to be a seed. But they plant it and they want it to grow. When we don't abide in Jesus, are we not doing the same thing? We're like, we're like putting a stick in the ground hoping that thing's going to grow and bear fruit. And nevertheless, it always withers, it always fades away, it always breaks and gets thrown into the fire, does it not? The sap that's in the branch is the same that's the sap that's in the vine. And so when we are connected to Jesus, we have the same life flowing through us. Does your abiding in Jesus seem to fluctuate? Does it seem to go up and down? Does it seem to depend on what's circumstantially happening in your life? Do you struggle with that? A Catholic priest by the name of Richard Rohr said one of the most profound things that I've ever heard before about this, and I'm going to share it with you. He says this, we cannot attain the presence of God. We're already totally in the presence of God. What's absent is awareness. What's absent is awareness. It's the reason that you and I run from God and seem to think that we're isolated and alone, that we're not with Jesus whenever things get tough in life. Or maybe when things get too good in life and we say, hey, we don't really need you anymore, Jesus. We just kind of needed you when things were getting tough and we couldn't handle life on our own. That's why I think it's almost just as important or maybe more important to seek God in prayer when things are going great in your life. Because you're prone to forget about Him. You're prone to forget about the union that you have with God in Christ through the Spirit. So what's lacking is awareness. Well, what seemed to be so evident in Acts chapter 4 with Peter and John is they were very aware of the fact that God's presence was with them, that He was going with them to the end of the age. And He was the one that was advancing this mission of people coming to Jesus and bowing their knee and and leaving their self-salvation projects. He seemed to be very aware of that. I want to share just briefly five layers 
of our unity in Christ. And just let these wash, wash over you. Because I think a lot of times we think about union with Christ, and it's like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to get that. And it's like we just kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. I think, I think it's good to sit on this and pause more since this is what salvation is. The fact that we're united to God through Christ by the Spirit. What wonderful news that is. Five layers of unity in Christ. It's a living union. What's that mean? Just as a vine feeds the branches, Jesus, our union with Christ, feeds our soul. So Christ nourishes and cherishes His church like a husband does a wife. We find life in the vine. It's a living, breathing union. It's like when you break a stick off of a tree and it's really hard to break off because it's still alive. And so you got to kind of twist it to get it broken off. You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of the same thing. We cannot be separated from God. Next, it's a vital union. So Christ dwells within believers as their life and becomes the dominating narrative of their life. So no longer is our sinful nature the thing that describes us and we identify with. Is it still present? Yeah, because we live in an already and a not yet world. So we fight against sin. We fight against flesh. We fight against the enemy. But the dominant narrative of your life, brother and sister in Christ, is the fact that Jesus has come while you were still sinning to redeem you. That's the narrative that describes you. I've often thought about what it would look like when we meet someone new. Instead of describing what we do, we just say, hey man, I'm a son of God. Like I'm, I'm beloved to the Lord. What do you think would happen in our small talk at Home Depot if we started acting like that? What if that was the dominating narrative? It wasn't where you worked, where you lived, or the activities that you participated in, but it was the fact that you were united to God through Christ by the Spirit. What would that look like? It's a spiritual union. We're strengthened by God, though we're still in the flesh. So we're sustained by the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures say that Jesus, it was better for Jesus to come and give us the Spirit because it was a deposit for the redemption of our souls. That's what the Holy Spirit is. He's always reminding you that it's true, that you can believe the Gospel. It's like He's whispering that into our ear. That we can believe the Gospel, that it's true that Jesus came and that He's redeeming us. It's this permanent union. So the relationship can never be dissolved. I don't know about you, but there aren't many things in my life that I think, hey, that's never going to go away. Jesus is the only thing, is He not? It can never be dissolved. As Romans 8 says, neither height nor depth nor breadth nor width, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's how big Jesus is. That's how big His work on the cross was. That's how big the resurrection is, is that nothing can separate you, Christian. Not losing your job. Not your kids going off the rails. Not losing your house. Not getting into an argument with your spouse. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Have you ever stopped to think about that? There's nothing. The union is that strong. And lastly, it's a mysterious union. It's mysterious not because it's taboo or mystical, but it surpasses what we understand of what unity means. It's stronger than any bond that we have a picture of, whether it be a foundation in a house or of a marriage. It's a mysterious union because we can't fully get our minds around it. We have all of these vignettes and metaphors to describe it, but none of them are sufficient for what we actually have in Christ Jesus. Nothing can take it away. 
Yet most of us have learned a deceptive art. And it's this art right here. <clears throat> to do for Jesus without being with Jesus. Let me say that again. We've learned this deceptive art, and the, the art is this. That it's possible to do for Jesus without being with Jesus. And our big idea of where this whole sermon's going today is this, is that being with Jesus precedes doing for Jesus. That's the scariest thing in the world for me as a pastor, that it would be possible for me to be one of those guys on the Sanhedrin. To do ministry, to be maybe the best preacher in the world, yet to not be with Jesus. To miss Jesus in the process. So whatever it is in your life, that draws you, whatever sin it is, whatever unbelief it is that draws you away, I want to encourage you to have moments where you can pause whenever you feel like the union with Christ, your awareness, the union with Christ is drifting. Because unfortunately, we run at such a breakneck speed that we don't give pause for that. Yet that's the Holy Spirit reminding us, hey, you need to get recentered here, bro. Things aren't going like you want them to. You need to stop and remember that He's with you always to the end of the age. That nothing can separate you from the love of God that you have in Christ. You need to stop and remember those things because you're going down a sinful path. You're going down this path where you're going to try to do life on your own and it's going to be a disaster. Do we have margin in our, not, in our life to hit pause whenever it's going off the rails? Because we really got to have that church. The second part of where we're going today is this, is that we have this tendency, as I'm talking about, to abandon our union with Christ. I recently heard one of my friends say this, pastors should be learning more about being a pastor from farmers than from CEOs. Now, no offense to those of you that are CEOs, you're incredibly valuable. There's a few of you in the room. Uh, we love you. Uh, but I'm going to take my note from John 15. Uh, I'm going to let that be the predominant narrative of what it means to pastor. And here's, here's where I'm going with this. Let's, let's remember John 15, the vine and the branches that we talked about, this union with Christ. We're tempted to think that there are some seasons of life that are unnecessary for our spiritual growth. Are we not? We're tempted to think that there are things that we can do without in our union with Christ. There are things that, that God could do differently to make us who we are going to be in Christ. We're tempted to think that the story of Job, we're going to look at that briefly, the story of Job, that, that we could have really done without that. Job, Job there's something that Job, uh, we don't understand that there's something that Job had to gain in, in his knowledge and awareness of God that he could not gain apart from all the loss that he experienced. Every season of abiding is necessary for the fruit that you will bear. Every single season. None of it wasted. None of it at all. So think about the springtime. You know, if we're going off this Richard Rohr quote, which I think is very biblical, that our awareness of God's presence is what's lacking. In the springtime, the awareness of God's presence is budding, is it not? It's like... You sense that God is near and you want more and more of Him. Just like in the springtime, we have those, those cold snaps that come back and we're like, hey, can't you just go away for the rest of the year? Can't summertime just come on? That's what it feels like spiritually in the springtime. Or think about the summertime. The awareness of God's presence is in full 
bloom, just like the flowers of the field are so beautiful. We seem to see God in everything. Every corner we turn around is this divine appointment. It's this beautiful thing. We've been there before. We've been on the mountaintop, have we not? It's so good to be there. And we do everything that we can to stay on that mountaintop. But time and time again, you know what God does? He blows that mountain up, doesn't He? Think about the spiritual fall. The awareness of God's presence begins to wane. And we begin to become fearful, don't we? We begin to say, God, what are you doing? Why are you taking this away from me? Why do things seem to not be going as well as they were in the summer? And then in the winter, the awareness of God's presence isn't visible to us. Some of you are in the spiritual winter right now, even though it's the middle of summer in Atlanta. You're in the spiritual winter where the awareness of God's presence isn't very visible to you. So what do you do in those seasons? Everything in us says to run away and hide, doesn't it? Isolate yourself. That's the way out. Just don't let anybody in. The problem is, is the way that we grow is that we are reminded of the Gospel in the community called the church. God calls us to commit to His people because there's going to be a season when you can't stand on your own. And actually, that's every day of our life because it's Jesus that sustains us. I'm reminded of Job like we were talking about earlier. Job has lost everything. He's lost his family, his fortune, and he is at the end of the rope. And he's got these three friends that just can't seem to keep their mouths shut, right? They just keep, keep opening their mouth. And it's discouraging and discouraging and discouraging. And it seems like there's no hope. And then Job responds like this in chapter 13 where he's really at the end of the rope. And he says this. It's this, it's this it, he fluctuates between seeing light and hoping in God and thinking that he's alone. And he says this in 13.15, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me. It is the Lord. Make no, make no error here. It is the Lord that's slaying me. Is what he's saying. It's, it's the Lord, sovereign Lord of the world seems to see this fit for my life. He's slaying me. Yet he's the only thing I got to hope in. He's slaying me for my good and his glory. Then he goes on to say this a few verses later. Why do you hide your face from me, God? Why do you count me as an enemy? Some of you right now are in the winter time of the soul and you feel like God is against you because He's allowing these things to happen. You can't see the full picture. It's mysterious what God's doing and how He's uniting us to Him. How He's taking us into these deep levels of darkness so, that we can, so the light will be more clear when we see it. The promise that we have is that He won't let us go. And that is better than any promise that we can manufacture on our own. He will never let you go. Some of your families are so destroyed, yet He will never let you go. He's the good Father that you've never had before. He will never let us go. And the tendency is to fight through the winter and to do for God without being with God. And you eventually come to the end of your rope and you can't handle it anymore. So what, what do we do? Jesus calls us to have a merry heart in a Martha world. Let's, let's read this and then we'll close it out. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. There's this encounter that Jesus has with these two women of Bethany that have this brother named Lazarus that Jesus is good friends with all of them. They've been so hospitable to him when he's been around Jerusalem and he's stayed at their house many times. And this is one of those journeys Jesus was taking. He was going to stay over in Bethany. And the Scriptures say this, starting in verse 38, 
Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed Him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Do you hear that? Distracted with much serving. We seem to think that we're in our best place when we're serving. Well, it's possible to be distracted in your serving. It's possible to be distracted from being with Jesus because you're doing for Jesus. So what's that mean? Some of you, to be with Jesus, you need to stop doing so much. That's crazy. That's a dangerous thing for a pastor to say to, right? Of a church plan. But that could be true for you. Let's keep going. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Jesus rebukes her. What's he say? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. One thing. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. See, Martha's not a bad person. I'm not trying to pit Martha and say, oh, you know, you guys need to be more like Mary and less like Martha. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's easy to get it mixed up. It's easy to miss Jesus in the middle of ministry. It's easy to miss Jesus in the middle of being a disciple. It's easy to miss Jesus. So what's Mary's priority? Mary finds her identity in being. So how do we know this? Well, she's eager to sit with Jesus. She doesn't have this agenda. Sure, there's dishes in the sink, but Jesus is in the living room. How can I go to the kitchen, right? Jesus is there. So she takes advantage of the opportunity. Jesus' presence seems to be her highest priority. Now, now if let's just say Mary was actively doing something around the house. I'd be more than willing to bet that Mary wouldn't be anxious about her doing because she's in a place of deep rest because her being is found in Jesus. I'm just willing to bet that. We don't see that in this narrative, but I'm just willing to put my money on that. Now, what, what about Martha's priorities? Martha finds her identity in doing. So she's busy doing for God. She's active, yet she's empty. It's possible to be active in Christ and empty because you're not in Christ. She's tied up in comparison and unable to enjoy Jesus in the moment. Church, we have to learn to sit at the feet of Jesus with nothing more to offer than an attentive heart. Because if we cannot do that, nothing that we do actually carries any weight at all. What's it look like for you to attentively sit at the feet of Jesus during this season of your life? To be with Jesus. After all, that was the most noticeable thing about Peter and John. That they had been with Jesus. That Jesus had come to them and they had this loving union with Jesus. So very practically, I just want to give you some diagnostic indicators of what this might look like in your life. Now this isn't an exhaustive list, but there's a few, few points I just want to mention to you to maybe maybe help you kind of identify kind of where you're at in this season and your awareness of your union with Christ. So here's some indicators of an abandoned union with Christ. Like Jesus is with you, yet you don't realize it. You don't acknowledge it. You don't pursue it. You have suppressed emotion and anxiety and you have no time to process it. Anxiety is going to come up in your life. 
But the one who sits at the feet of Jesus makes a little margin to process it. We don't run away from it. We process it. We let Jesus deal with it. Your fellowship and your worship seem to be burdensome. It's really an effort to be around God's people because you're so busy trying to keep yourself buttoned up. You've not let people really know you. Other sin is more readily apparent than your own. So, when you get into conflict, you're real quick to see the speck in your brother or sister's eye, yet the plank is still hanging out of your own eyes, Jesus says in Matthew 7. So you're real quick to see their sin instead of your own. You often have fear about the future. The future cripples you. It paralyzes you. The unknown keeps you awake at night. You feel threatened by the success of others and terrified about your own future. You feel like like if they're succeeding, there's no way that I could succeed like that. And lastly, comparison often robs you of joy. You just seem to be noticing everyone else and not able to sit with Jesus. So what are some indicators of an abiding union with Christ? Maybe, Maybe things that we ought to hope for and pray for in our own life. You have no need to fix others because you realize you're loved by God and therefore can be loving to others. You see, it's impossible for us to love other people unless we allow God to love us. Unless we receive the love that God gives to us in Christ. How could we ever be uh, unconditionally loving to other people? We cannot give away something that we don't have. That's called bankruptcy, right? We can't do that. We can't live in spiritual bankruptcy. You are not hurried and have margin to be fully present with God and other people. You catch, I love this right here. I, I, this is what I thought about more than anything as I was writing this. You catch yourself lingering with God and others in fellowship with no agenda. You just catch yourself just, just lingering over the Word. Maybe another cup of coffee as I'm reading the Bible this morning. Maybe, maybe I'll stay after small group a little bit longer. Maybe I'll go invite someone to dinner that I haven't seen in a while just to be in their company. You catch yourself lingering. You're not afraid to confess sin to God and others because of your deep security in Christ. You're free to be a sinner because God's grace is so much greater than your sin. Where Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That seems to be true in your heart. And lastly, you're not threatened by living a seemingly obscure life before others because you are known by God. That's your narrative. God knows me. God loves me. I'm free to be obscure. That would be our narrative. There's a guy that I know that, that I don't know because he lived 325 years ago that I've read a lot about <laughs> that wrestled deeply with this. His name? Nicholas Herman. Nicholas Herman became a, a monk in Paris, France 325 years ago. You might know him by his name in the monastery. Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence wrestled deeply with this. And the thing that he discovered as he wrestled with with this was that experiencing God's presence should happen everywhere. That, That it's not, we shouldn't just hope for that when we're on the mountaintop spiritually, but that we could experience that everywhere. So I want to read a quote to you by him as we close this thing out. And this was written about, Brother Lawrence didn't write this, this is written about Brother Lawrence, okay? That we should establish ourselves in a sense of God's presence, by continually conversing with him. That it was a shameful thing for him to quit the conversation. 
That no matter what was happening, how could he walk away from his conversation with God? Because prayer, you know what it does? It draws us into the awareness of God's presence with us. That's what prayer does for us. He goes on to say this, the time of business does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And then the noise and clatter of my kitchen. You see, he was a, he was a chef. He, he worked in the kitchen. He washed the dishes and he repaired sandals. That was his job in the monastery. He said, hey, look, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of clatter in my kitchen. And several people are asking at the same time for different things. But he says this, I possess God in, a, in as great tranquility as if I were on my knees. Don't you long for that church? What would that be like? To, to be driving down the road knowing that Jesus is not your co-pilot, but He's inside of you. To be walking down the street and understanding that Jesus is living inside of you no matter what the situation. Church, that's our prayer this morning. and That's the invitation that God gives us. That He's with us. And this isn't think, something we just hope for occasionally. This is something that we can experience and we should fight for every single day. Let's pray. Our Father, we... We thank You for, uh, for the gift of unity with You through Jesus by the Spirit. God, I pray that we would fight well for joy that we have in Christ. That we would not settle for lesser things. That we wouldn't settle to feel separated and isolated. But in those moments that we would use all means and resources available to us to discover the awareness, our awareness of Your presence with us. I pray for those in here right now that are going through that long, dark night of the soul. They're in that spiritual winter right now. And they're terrified and alone. And it took everything within them just to come to worship this morning. God, I pray that You would wrap them in Your love this morning through Your people and through Your Word and that a flood of good news would be poured into their souls. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.